Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 110. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on March 26, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. As we say on the homepage of the website, we believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. All of that. For those of you listening in close to real time, on April 11th, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the evening. We've got some interest in doing a meetup at some as yet unspecified venue, probably a bar brewery. If you'd like to join a few of us, send me a note at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com through the contact page on the website or by direct message on Twitter. As we get closer, I'll find some place probably fairly convenient to DuPont Circle or maybe just somewhere in the district, and I'll let people know the details via Twitter, the Facebook page for the podcast, and the website. We're still on our Roger Williams arc, which has been long on theological and legal matters and short on action. With this episode, we will conclude our time with Williams for now, although since he would live another 40-plus consequential years, I'm quite sure we will return to him. But we have other matters to attend to in New England and beyond, so knowing me, it might take me months to get back to him. Anyway, I'm not the prerequisites guy or anything, but I believe your enjoyment of this episode would be maximized if you have listened to at least the last two in the timeline related specifically to Roger Williams. Another thing, the pace and density of the history of the Americans are rapidly accelerating by the mid-1630s, and even this podcast won't be able to dig into all of it in the great detail with which we have all become accustomed. There will be a lot of new towns and even entire colonies founded over the next few years, each with their own stories, not all of which are particularly important to our national story, but some of it is worth mentioning and even warrants a forthcoming deep dive. In 1636, which contains most of the events of this episode, the Puritan merchant William Pynchon, another early American disruptor and ancestor of the great 20th century novelist Thomas Pynchon, would establish the town of Springfield, Massachusetts. William Pynchon would later achieve fame for having written the first book truly banned in Boston, if we don't count William's tract written for William Bradford and Edward Winslow arguing that the English couldn't just take Indian land. We may or may not return to him. In July, Indian allies of the Narragansetts would kill the English trader John Oldham and several of his crew at Block Island, which would become the casus belli of the Pequot War, the subject of more than one fairly imminent episode. My muse hasn't quite mapped that out. In August, other settlers would add Dedham, Massachusetts to the Bay Colony's roster of chartered towns. Three weeks after that, the General Court of the Bay would establish a new college, which today we know as Harvard. Anne Hutchinson, who we will discuss at some point in the next few months, 
was hosting the ladies of Boston and even some of their husbands at a large house. They learnedly discussed the edgy preaching of their minister, John Cotton, one of the two or three leading theologians of the Bay. Those discussions would catalyze an almost unbelievably arcane controversy and result in the second most consequential expulsion from the Bay that decade. And most relevantly for this episode, in June 1636, Roger Williams would found the Providence Plantations, but only after surviving a really bad winter. In early January 1636, Roger Williams fled his house in Salem one step ahead of the law. His destination was the Narragansett Bay, for it was outside of the Bay Colony's jurisdiction, and he had traveled there and befriended and earned the trust of the sachems in the region. He headed into the woods, still sick, probably alone. Some historians think he brought a servant, but the oft-quoted John Barry doesn't, forcing his way through deep snow and bitter cold. He left his family behind, and it would be months before he would see them again. And, of course, his clothing would have been entirely inadequate by today's standards. No North Face parka or other such technical gear for Williams. He would have been weighed down by sodden wool and freezing in leather boots. Think about what this must have been like for him. More than 30 years later, he would refer to that winter snow which I feel yet. As physically tough as he was, the cold of that January was with him forever. Now let's go to John Barry's description, which includes quotations from Williams. Quote, He most likely made for the Wampanoags, the closest tribe to the south beyond the boundaries of the Bay Colony. He'd long traded with the Wampanoag sachem Usamequin. That was the actual name of the sachem the pilgrims referred to as Massasoit, by the way. For years, he had spared no cost toward them and in gifts to Osamequinye and all his. That investment proved a wise one, but it was still 30 miles to Wampanoag territory. Possibly on his way there, other Indians sheltered him for some nights. Wherever he stayed, he survived only because Indians took him in. There was no comfort in this shelter. For 14 weeks... He did not know what bread or bed did mean. Moving from place to place, enduring distressed wanderings among the barbarians and destitute of food, of clothes, during the worst of it, I may say as Jacob Peniel, I have seen the face of God. Back to me. The physical trial was perhaps not the worst of it. Williams was no loner. No recluse, happy to be done with this world. He was a kind, loving man who, notwithstanding his own dogmatic theology, reveled in the company of hearth and home and kith and kin. That he'd been exiled, rejected, scarred him just as that winter's cold. He did not want to spend his life with Indians or alone, and the Bay Colony would not in any case leave him alone. During that winter, John Cotton took the time to write taunting letters to him, passed from one Indian to another until they reached Williams. Cotton gleefully told Williams, 
that if he perished among the barbarians, your blood had been on your own head. It was your sin to procure it and your sorrow to suffer it. Cotton had forgotten or suspended the Puritan commitment to love, and Williams would remember the pain of it for the rest of his life. John Cotton, it must be said, was a politically flexible preacher who would both taunt his enemies in victory and betray his most loyal followers according to the requirements of the moment, as Anne Hutchinson would one day learn to her sorrow. He was, in short, kind of a nickname for Richard. Family podcast, etc., etc. William spent that long winter, certainly into late March, among the Indians and searching for a place to settle and build a house so that his family could join him. He found such a place believed to be in today's town of Rumford, Rhode Island, which sits on the eastern bank of the Seekonk River and just west of the border between today's states of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. If you pop open a map app, you'll see that it is about 10 miles as even a normal crow flies from the northern reaches of Narragansett Bay, and a bit more by following the winding river south. It's also about the same distance to Warren, Rhode Island, which was the site of the village of Poconoke, the seat of Massasoit's government, such as it was. There, with the permission of Massasoit, Williams found forested land with good soil and went to work building a shelter. At some point in early spring, presumably not long after Williams had started cutting down trees, a small group of men, John Barry says it was a handful, from Salem arrived and asked to join him. William allowed them to remain. Years later, after he'd come to rue the decision for involved reasons we may or may not explore someday, my muse, etc., etc., Williams wrote that he let them stay out of pity but more likely he was just lonely. Regardless, they built temporary shelters, probably poorly fashioned wigwams or wetus, cleared the land, planted crops, and even began building proper houses so that their families could join them. Now, from the English perspective, Williams and the other Salem men had settled in the jurisdiction of Plymouth. Massasoit's permission was essential both to their relationship with the Wampanoags and because Williams had, as we've seen, concluded that it was morally necessary. To the English, however, the permission of the local tribes was perhaps necessary, at least some of the time, but it was not sufficient. Plymouth would have to give its assent, and it had. Notwithstanding Williams' somewhat disruptive departure from Plymouth three years before, William Bradford and Edward Winslow saw no reason to hound him any more than he already had been. Unfortunately, the Bay Colony, which by this point had around ten times the population of Plymouth, would not let the matter sit. Williams was a fugitive. The general court had issued a warrant to arrest him and send him back to England, but he'd scrammed it before John Underhill could execute it. The Bay had issued that warrant precisely because they were worried that Williams would do exactly as he was now doing, establish a settlement of religious radicals, as they saw it, that would be a continuing source of nonconformity. They did not want Williams' ideas to spread back to Massachusetts, having gone to so much trouble to eradicate them. So they put pressure on Plymouth to push him out of its jurisdiction, too. Winslow, then the governor, sent Williams' word that he had, quote, 
fallen into the edge of their bounds, and they were loath to displease the bay. Winslow told them to remove but to the other side of the water, the west bank of the Seacock River, which was out of Plymouth's territory. Once they moved, Winslow told them, they would be loving neighbors together. The timing was terrible. They had cleared fields, planted a crop, and started work on houses. All that would be wasted, and they would have to abandon their fields before the harvest. But they also had no choice. Plymouth might not enjoy the Bay Colony marching soldiers through its territory, but it could not do anything to prevent it either. So Williams and the Salem men crossed the river into Narragansett country. They picked a site on a peninsula at the confluence of the Moshasic and Wunasquatucket rivers. Say that a few times fast. Moshasic and Wunasquatucket rivers, which today is right in the middle of the city of Providence. There seems to be a well-regarded restaurant there named Cafe Nuovo, Perhaps our listeners in Rhode Island can tell us whether it warrants the respectable rating reported on Google Maps. Now, long-standing and very attentive listeners will understand that there were significant geopolitical implications in settling on Narragansett land. The Narragansetts were always rivals and sometimes enemies of the Wampanoags, and there was no love lost between Massasoit and Canonicus than Narragansett Sachem. Fifteen years before, Massasoit had struck his alliance with the Pilgrims to bolster his position against Canonicus, and Canonicus had sent the Pilgrims a bundle of arrows wrapped in a snakeskin, which Tisquantum had interpreted as the threat of war. Whether or not it was, the Pilgrims had sent the skin back filled with powder and shot, and war was avoided. Canonicus had no affection for the English. Williams, however, was not the usual Englishman. During his years trading with the Indians, living as their guest, and learning their language, he had, as we have seen, earned their respect and friendship. He had made a point of getting to know Canonicus and other Narragansett sachems, and had given them tokens and presents, in his words, which no doubt they much esteemed, in my words. He had even helped them negotiate treaties, he was confident Canonicus would give him permission to settle, and he did. They negotiated clear boundaries. Williams offered to pay, but Canonicus refused. Williams later wrote that Canonicus was not, I say, to be stirred with money to sell his land to let in foreigners. Tis true he received presents and gratuities, many of me, but it was not thousands nor ten thousands of money could have bought of him an England entrance into this bay. The land, Williams wrote, was purchased by love. The Bay Colony was not, however, pleased. The Boston authorities, although presumably not Winthrop personally, pressured Massasoit to object. Now to John Barry's account, quote, Usamequin, Massasoit, now protested, though a friend to Williams personally, he was likely spurred to object at least partly because of pressure and promises of support from Massachusetts. He probably also feared that any connection between an Englishman and the Narragansetts further jeopardized his tribe. He admitted that he had ceded the land of the Narragansetts after a war, which, in law, made it theirs by right of conquest. 
But he now claimed that right of conquest did not apply because, he argued, the Narragansetts had not actually defeated him. But God, subdued us by a plague, which swept away my people and forced me to yield. Therefore, he insisted, the peninsula remained Wampanoag land, therefore still within Plymouth boundaries. By then, Winslow, the governor who had told him simply to cross to the other side of the river, had returned to England to act as an agent for Plymouth. William Bradford had replaced him as governor. Williams must have worried that Plymouth would force him to move once again, yet if Bradford had warned Massachusetts authorities about him when he left Plymouth, Bradford had also called him godly and zealous, a man of many precious parts. Now Bradford felt sympathy for him. He noted that Williams had already suffered the loss of a harvest that year, and was as good as banished from Plymouth as from Massachusetts. Bradford would push him no further. He pledged that even if, after due examination, it should be found true what Massasoit said, still Williams should not be molested and tossed up and down again while they had breath in their bodies. Williams and his followers were finally free. Back to me. The arrival of Williams and his Salem band at Providence is the stuff of local lore. Williams stepped ashore on a rock called Slate Rock and was greeted by local Narragansetts who said, What cheer, Netop? I'm not sure what Netop refers to, but what cheer was an old English expression, the shortening of the greeting, What cheery news do you bring? Presumably the Narragansetts had learned it from the English whom they had already encountered in the early 17th century. This was interesting to me, being a childhood Iowan, because Iowa has a town named Whatcheer, a name with more meaning than I imagined when I knew it as a youth. Anyway, the New England Historical Society has a page on the Slate Rock story, which I will link in the show notes on the website. Let's go there for the story of Slate Rock, which might be interesting to our many Rhode Islander listeners. Quote, In the 19th century, someone came up with the idea of enshrining Slate Rock and developing it as a tourist attraction for Providence. Having gained the support of the town fathers, in 1877, work began in clearing on and about Slate Rock. By that time, it had become overgrown and covered with sediment that washed down on it. Someone suggested they just dislodge the rock and move the whole thing. In their infinite wisdom, they decided to use some dynamite to effect the move. Alas, they used too much dynamite and blew Roger Williams' slate rock to smithereens. But all of these pieces were not completely lost. Enterprising merchants sold chunks of Rhode Island's Plymouth Rock in stores. You can see some pieces in the floor of the vestibule of the Central Baptist Church on Wayland Avenue in Providence. You can see another chunk embedded in Brown University's Waterman Avenue gates and one in the pedestal of the Brown University Bear on campus. Back to me, we are nothing if not into weird trivia here on the History of the Americans podcast. From the very beginning, Williams intended his settlement to be a place of refuge, a corner of true freedom in the wilderness. He later wrote, Having made covenant, 
of peaceable neighborhood with the sachems and natives round about us, and having in a sense of God's merciful providence unto me in my distress, called the place Providence, I desired it might be for a shelter for persons distressed of conscience. His commitment to that premise would be tested again and again, particularly by Quakers, who were not of his liking in the least, and yet Williams would stand true to it as long as he lived. Williams and the Salem men were not actually the first English in Narragansett territory. Ten miles to the north, as the perfectly average crow might fly, William Blackstone had made a home in today's Woonsocket, Rhode Island. As even recent and mildly attentive listeners will recall, Blackstone had been living alone on the Shawmut Peninsula, Boston, when the Winthrop fleet had arrived. He had tired of the Puritans and sold his farm to them, today's Boston Common, and repaired to Narragansett country a few years before. But no settlement had grown up around him, which was all to his liking. Roger Williams was the founder of the plantation at Providence, the father of today's state of Rhode Island. Rhode Island would have a mother, too, but that's a story for another day. Williams, unlike Blackstone, had no interest in living alone. He was a social animal, and he aspired to build a society that would be compatible with his views, one that provided for unlimited freedom of conscience. Neither was Williams an anarchist or utopian. He understood human frailty and how it needed to be managed. Fortunately, Williams had a deep, if informal, education in law, having worked for Sir Edward Coke, and in political theory, having witnessed the contest between Parliament and the Crown in the 1620s, a conflict that had not yet broken out into actual fighting, but would soon enough. Providence did not need its own body of law, insofar as it was easy enough to conclude that English law and rights, which applied in the colonies because of Coke, would also prevail in Providence. But Providence, a small town with perhaps a dozen families adding up to well under a hundred people, needed some mechanism for governing itself. This would again begin with Williams who personally owned all the relevant land by virtue of the grant of the Narragansetts. Williams, however, had no interest in running the show per se. He did not claim any special authority so long as the land remained communally available as, in his words, a common stock for such as were destitute, especially for conscience. The earliest decisions at Providence were made by majority rule of the heads of households. Unfortunately, Williams had apparently not studied the results of common ownership of land in the New World. It had failed at Jamestown, where after 15 years of struggle, the Virginia Company decided that agricultural productivity would soar if farmers enjoyed the benefit of their own output, and it did. It had taken the Pilgrims of Plymouth only two or three years to learn the same lesson. Various of the settlers from Salem and new people trickling in wanted, in effect, private plots. They wanted their own homesteads, so they and their progeny could benefit from their own labor. The dream of most every farmer since they came up with farms. Williams caved quickly, giving up his communal ideas, but not without using his leverage to get agreement on the form of government. Williams drafted a compact 
before sharing it locally, he sent it to John Winthrop, whom he still considered a mentor, for advice. It allowed for liberty of conscience, William's words, the liberty to think freely about God. It's unlikely that Williams wanted Winthrop's input on that bit, and in any case, Winthrop's response does not survive. In the end, the final document adopted in August 1637 was incredibly simple, rivaling the Mayflower Compact in its brevity. Here's the text of the whole thing, quote, We whose names are hereunder, desirous to inhabit in the town of Providence, do promise to subject ourselves in active or passive obedience to all such orders or agreements as shall be made for public good of our body, in an orderly way, by the major assent of the present inhabitants, master of families, incorporated together into a town fellowship, and others whom they shall admit unto them only in civil things. That's it. The two critical points being major assent, majority rule by the heads of households, and only in civil things, meaning that there would be no governmental authority over religious matters. Church and government were two different things, and civil authority over religious matters was definitely excluded in the Providence Compact. John Barry drills in on the most remarkable feature of this document, quote, The final version did not refer to God in any way. This was extraordinary. All comparable founding documents, whether English, Spanish, Portuguese, or French, spoke explicitly of God's purpose. Plymouth's Mayflower Compact, which governed both devout separatists and adventurers with purely secular interests in America, stated, having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Williams was a devout Puritan renowned for his piety. In two volumes of surviving letters, not a single one, not one, repeatedly fails to refer to God, not merely in some pro forma God willing, but in an intimate way, citing and quoting relevant scripture. Indeed, hardly a single paragraph in any letter fails to mention God. Faith longing for God and knowledge of Scripture are ingrained in his writing. Even for a 17th century writer, the frequency of his religious references stands out. His life revolved around seeking God. That search informed the way he thought, the way he wrote, what he did each day. For a man such as he to omit all mention of God underscored his absolute conviction that to assume that God embraced any state other than ancient Israel profaned God and signified human arrogance in the extreme. All those in Providence unanimously agreed to this compact, underscoring that his views were not unique to himself. Omitting the mention of God made the document which would govern Providence utterly mundane, mundane in the most literal sense, mundane in that it dealt solely with the world for it was hardly mundane in itself. It was revolutionary. Back to me. This is the moment when the idea of separation of church and state would come into the European world. 
In time, the idea would gain such currency in North America that our founders of the revolutionary era would enshrine it into our constitution. Even then, though, it would be a weird idea in lands governed by Europeans and their descendants. In this sense, Roger Williams' Providence Compact is far more significant than other such early American documents, including the Mayflower Compact, because it embeds a profound break with the thinking of the old world, which the Mayflower Compact, for all its celebration, did not. At the same time, the separation of Roger Williams' civil society from the church sprung from thinking that was in part quite alien to the way many Americans think about it today. To be sure, Williams was deeply committed to liberty of conscience. That is where we get our free exercise clause in the First Amendment. Few Americans today would say they oppose liberty of conscience, at least in the abstract. Williams, however, was most concerned that the integration of the state and religion would inevitably corrupt religion and thereby sin against the perfect kingdom of God. Secular Americans today worry more about the reverse, that local majorities might vote to impose their religious strictures on a population that does not care about God in the least. Few such people know that they owe their right to object to religious rule even if supported by a Democratic majority, to the profoundly religious Roger Williams. It is important also here to mention that the Providence Compact did not quite reflect popular sovereignty in the sense that the idea would emerge later in the 17th century from Thomas Hobbes, who would not publish his first book until several years after the Providence Compact, or John Locke, who was almost exactly five years old when the good people of Providence adopted it. But it was damned close. Edmund Morgan, in his book on Roger Williams, describes the Puritan idea of political legitimacy, which, it will surprise no attentive listener, springs from their passion for covenants. Quote, Rulers, the Puritan said, were God's vicegerents. That's a vocab word, by the way. Agents appointed to enforce his will, but his manner of appointing them was indirect. He gave authority initially to a whole people and allowed them to pass it on through a covenant to rulers. Back to me, Williams would reject that notion because there was, he said, no evidence that God gave authority to anybody. Quoting Morgan again. Williams agreed that political power came to government from the people and that it was up to the people to measure it out to their rulers in a covenant that bound both parties. But he had his own ideas about the role of God in the process. The God of Roger Williams was a real and unmistakable God who did not enter into the transactions of men in so light a manner as to be unperceived. If he had given political power to a group of people, there would be no mistaking the fact that he had done it. John Winthrop might persuade himself that God had sealed a covenant with Massachusetts simply by bringing a company of people safely across the Atlantic Ocean. Roger Williams could not. John Winthrop might see the hand of God offering him authority whenever the voters of Massachusetts cast their ballots for him. Roger Williams could not. 
And when Puritans talked of the divine right of kings or of the peoples holding the powers of government in trust for the Almighty, Roger Williams wanted to see the deed of gift. Where and when and how, he wanted to know, did God transfer his powers to the people or anyone else? Back to me. There would be differences between William's ideas about the authority for government of the people by the people and those of Hobbes and Locke, but one needs to be a political philosopher to sort it all out. Critically, Roger Williams made it clear for the first time in the European tradition that civil power did not come from God, an unbelievably radical idea in a world still run by kings. Anyway, in return for his civil compact, William sold his land in parcels for small sums, only to recover the costs he'd incurred in establishing the new settlement. He set aside some land for himself and his family and then donated the balance to the town of Providence. Thereafter, new settlers paid the town 30 shillings into the public treasury in return for their parcels. Each purchaser had an equal voice in government per the compact. Now back to Barry, quote, as the Providence government, and later Rhode Island's government also, grew and became more formalized, its essential nature remained true to the original compact Williams had written. This nature differed in important ways from that of Massachusetts, not to mention England. The most obvious difference, of course, involved religion. Williams was creating a haven for those whose religious views had made them outcasts. So the separation of God from the civil state continued and slowly matured. Providence would neither impose a religious test for voting, nor would it require church attendance of those living there. This was a costly step, since virtually every other government in England and New England collected significant revenues from fines on those who did not attend to worship. Back to me, religious practices in Providence were so personal, so intimate, so individual that Providence would not have its own church for another 50 years. That alone is astonishing. So, in addition to founding what would become an American state and providing refuge to people banished for their conscience, Roger Williams constructed the first rationale for separation of church and state and implemented the first democracy that claimed its power from its citizens rather than the Almighty. Here's how the great 19th century historian George Bancroft asked that Williams be remembered. Quote, if Copernicus is held into the world that the sun is the center of our system, if the name of Kepler is preserved for his sagacity in detecting the laws of the planetary motion, if the genius of Newton has been almost adored for dissecting a ray of light and weighing heavenly bodies as in a balance, let there be for the name of Roger Williams a place among those who have advanced moral science and made themselves the benefactors of mankind. That's it then. Roger Williams was the first American who might plausibly be called a benefactor of mankind. This is a great place to stop for today. We will return off and on to Roger Williams in Rhode Island, which is not surprising because he would live until 1683 and do a lot of interesting things along the way. 
But a lot will happen in the lands now encompassed by the United States in that time. So we will travel elsewhere in the coming weeks. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.